1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge
0: the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hello to you my very good friends. Football is over for another year. So you know what that means. It means Melbourne Cup. Gross. And then it's totally Christmas. We're working hard making sure our patrons still have an episode of Australian True Crime every week over Christmas while everyone else is taking a break and there are no new podcasts to listen to so don't be caught out don't end up listening to some sad imitation of australian true crime because you're too tight to pay 5 bucks a month to become a patron that is $5 us by the way which i know is more let me check today's conversion rate real quick okay that that is just over as of this morning 116,000 Dong a month. So I know that puts it into perspective, doesn't it? You don't even have to be a dong and heir to enjoy a very Australian true crime Christmas. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised.
3: You know, you've got floating towns going out there with 5,000 people. You've got a captain and you've got officers and you've got security. But you've got no police force. They just do what they want. And this is where it all starts to become too difficult for any government to ever do anything about changing it because it's the laws of the sea. Passengers should be told this or explained it in simple terms as to what rights they're giving up.
0: I have something of a phobia when it comes to the idea of cruise ships. I know people who swear by them, but I honestly feel my throat constricting right now with anxiety just thinking about being trapped on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. And I think a big part of it is the case we're covering in this episode, the 2002 death on board the P&O cruise ship Pacific Sky of Brisbane woman Diane Brimble.
4: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next.
0: I'm sure many of you, like me, have a very clear picture in your minds right now of Diane. Her broad smile, her dancing eyes, her beautiful, open, gentle face. In every one of the handful of photos published and republished of Diane over the years, alongside details of the most horrible, humiliating ordeal a woman could imagine, she's always leaning shyly into the picture, sort of shrugging, like she's trying to shrink herself. But there's such deep warmth in that smile. She always looks like she loves the person who's taking the photo so much. 42 when she died... Diane Brimble is one of those victims of crime that a certain generation of Australian women have taken to our hearts. An unassuming mum of two grown-up sons with her first husband and a teenage daughter with her second husband from whom she'd also broken up, Diane had saved up for three years to take her daughter on a cruise. The two of them were sharing a cabin with Diane's sister and her daughter. It was the cheapest kind of cabin on the ship, one of those in the middle, with four bunks, And no window. Diane wasn't asking for much, but on the very first night of that cruise, she got so much less when she met eight men from Adelaide who embody everything women fear and dread about men who travel in packs. Diane's case stays with me too because it's just another example of something terrible that happened to a woman just like me. And it's really obvious to everyone what happened, and yet, no one's ever going to be held accountable. But today, we'll hear from the unlikely hero of this story, Diane Brimble's ex-husband, Mark. He's fought for her honour for almost 20 years now. He united everyone who loved Diane, sacrificed so much of his own life, and took on the legal system the cruising industry and the Australian Federal Government to try to make cruising safer for everyone. He's an extraordinary man, and we started off by trying to find out a bit more about the early days of the relationship that forged this incredible loyalty in Mark for his ex-wife, Diane.
3: Oh, I think it was around about 80 81, 80, 81, we kind of met and then we got together. Sebastian was born in 82 and in 86, Aaron was born. So yeah, always Brisbane based. I immigrated over from England in 78, just came straight to Brisbane and really kind of made that the place that I wanted to stay in. So never really thought of moving out of Brisbane and yeah, been here ever since.
0: And what was Diane doing when, when you met her? What are your memories of that time?
3: She was working in a service station and then she moved from that into some administrative role that she was doing in the city, so she's always kind of keeping herself busy.
0: How old were you guys?
3: Oh, I was 23, she was 22. Hmm.
0: Very young, very young, and quite young when you had your kids too.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was always the plan, so, you know, try to, for them to be early and then later on as we got... Older, it would have been. Yeah, they could have grown off and left us to do our own thing.
0: Good strategy. So you ended up having the two kids,
3: three. I got remarried again in 1992, and uh, I've got a son now, uh, Liam. uh, My wife Lee. Liam's now 19, studying, and he's, he's doing music. He's enjoying himself.
0: So when you and Diane separated, it seems like you were well. Certainly, at the time of her death, you were very involved and seemed like you were in a very friendly relationship. Was it always that way when you when you first separated?
3: At first, no. But then it got to a position that there was always Aaron and Sebastian to take care of. And, you know, their welfare was always concerned. And as I'd remarried, I found that my wife now, Lee, knew Diane as well. So, and they got on all right. So, there was a, uh, an easy relationship between us all. And I think I always remember that she came over here the last Christmas that she was alive and uh, spent Christmas Day with us because she had no particular place to go and we had the boys here. So, yeah, it was as good as it could have been, you know, prior to her death.
0: That's amazing
3: mm.
0: uh, that she would spend Christmas with you and your wife and all the kids. That's yeah. pretty wonderful.
3: Yeah, it was, you know, and, and looking back and thinking about, the fact that we did do that, yeah, kind of hindsight, it's a very, very good thing.
0: Could you tell us about when you found out that something had gone terribly wrong on the cruise?
3: Oh, it's a difficult question. I can recall that I was driving down to the Gold Coast to go into a conference, and I got a phone call from Diane's sister saying that she'd been contacted and that Diane had been found dead on board the cruise ship that night or that morning. So my immediate thought was, because her sister had rung me and told me, was to turn around and head back to Brisbane and find my two boys or, you know, and tell them, because they, obviously they hadn't been told. And I do remember sitting down with my eldest son and letting him know, which was an awful time in my life, and then we were able to communicate the information through to Aaron, who was up in Harvey Bay, and he jumped in the car and started to drive home. Now, I think what's important to know is that all we knew at that time was that she had died. But the circumstances surrounding her death and you know the subsequent things that we found out, we did not know at that time. So we were very much in the dark and... Um, I, I endeavored to try to speak to somebody on p o to be able to contact those that were on the ship uh, only to find that their services were not available nobody there was nobody there to speak to there was no hotline to speak to there was no way of getting through to the ship uh, the ship and I was told by an individual that you know that person had gone home for the night and I, I, it was then that I started to become a little bit insistent. And I said, well, if they've gone home, they've got a mobile phone, give me their mobile phone, I'll ring it, and we'll find out how to get this done. And they said that they couldn't give out their mobile phone, but they could let that person know my number and that person could ring me back. So after a lot of insisting, I was able to ring the ship and get the remaining family that were on the ship to be able to speak to everybody just to ensure that they were okay. And then we you know, we were quickly into trying to organise uh, repatriation of the family and Diane's body back to Australia from New
4: It brings up a lot of things. You've got the tragedy of Diane's passing and you yet didn't know the horrible circumstances around that. Then you've got dealing with cruise ships and also yep. repatriating a body. I mean, that's so much to deal with and it's something you'd never expect to happen so you're just not going to know how to cope in these situations.
3: No, no, you're, you're pretty well finding this. You know, you've just got to find your way in in trying to resolve it. You know, it was one thing, to in, contacting the the family, but then contacting insurance companies and see what the insurance companies would do with it, contacting the French police to see whether they released the body. And then the body could only be flown back to Sydney and the family had to try to get back to Brisbane and... Yeah, it is. It 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 throws you into an area in life that you never even thought existed, and things and decisions that you had to make make that you wouldn't have even known. So,
0: but you're the kind you're you're one of these extraordinary people who ends up prosecuting witnesses in the inquest. Mm. You're one of these people who. Who just sort of takes on so much responsibility and doesn't stop? when we'll get well, to that, but when when did you realize that there was more to this story? When did the toxicology reports come out? When did you realize something very terrible had happened to Diane on the first night of this cruise?
3: Um, what happened after toxicology report, the toxicology reports were done and the autopsy was performed, and Diane was buried on the sixth. Of October. Now, from there, the family were told that there was possibly going to be some further inquiries into the circumstances surrounding her death, and there was a lot of swirling of, of what may have happened or what could have happened. I contacted the New South Wales police, and they said that the coroner had requested that a brief of evidence needed to be prepared or a brief needed to be prepared to be provided to the coroner for the coroners to determine what may or may not happen whether an inquest should be conducted and the police flew up to Brisbane and I know that they interviewed Diane's partner on and off David and myself and some other family members and they were asking some quite Graphic questions in relation to our relationship with her and we, we really didn't understand why all of this was being asked of us. Now I think another nine months went past where the coroner then advised me that they had received a brief from the police, New South Wales Police, that it was insufficient, ill-prepared and lacking in many areas. I then had to ask the coroner, you know, what does this mean? And then she said that I'm, I'm asking the police to go back and do a whole heap of other things that they didn't do to try to make the brief as substantial as possible so that, you know, it would help in if we end up going out for the inquest.
0: So about 18 months after but, Diane's died, the coroner's telling you she wants the police to go back and prepare a better brief?
3: Correct. Uh, Then I think around about two years later, the coroner wrote to me and turned around and said she had decided that there was to be an inquest. So I had made sure that I was one of the parties named in the, or the family was named in relation to the inquest.
0: By this Mm -hmm. stage, did you have any idea about this group of men who would become very no. known to you? You had no idea about it? No idea at all. Okay.
3: What then happened was because I was named and the brief had been um, finalised, the coroner arranged for the, the DPP in New South Wales to provide me with a copy of the brief. So I flew down to Sydney and went to the DPP and was provided with, I don't know, about four or five very large folders of information that had been put together for the brief for the coroner. And I can remember sitting in a hotel room in Sydney, reading through the brief, two years later, finally starting to get some idea of what it is that may or may not have occurred quite haunting, you know, to to see that and to hear about the drugs and then to the circumstances and then look at the interviews that the police had conducted, etc. So
0: So nobody prepared you for that? They handed you folders and sent you on your way and nobody prepared you at all for what was in those folders?
3: No, no. I was just handed the folders and left to my own devices.
0: The brief of evidence included details from those awkward interviews that Mark and Diane's ex-de facto husband, David Mitchell, gave to police. Here's a quote. Diane was prudish when it came to sex, without a hint of promiscuity. Mark Brimble, her ex-husband, and Dave Mitchell, her de facto husband, said she was extremely self-conscious of her body, particularly since gaining weight, and would insist on making love in the most discreet manner possible. Oral sex made her gag and she would only engage in this sexual act to please her long-term partner. She had engaged in a one-night stand on one occasion and was disgusted by her own behaviour. But if reading that in black and white about his dead ex-wife, the mother of his children, was difficult, it's hard to imagine what went through Mark Brimble's mind as he made his way through the statements of the eight strangers from Adelaide whom Diane met on her last night alive. Those eight men described Diane very differently. They alleged she'd approached them on the dance floor of the nightclub. She offered several of them sex, and even after repeated knockbacks, wouldn't take no for an answer. They claimed that she'd taken one of them into the toilets and performed oral sex on him, and that when the nightclub was closing... She asked to accompany them to their cabin for sex, knowing it was on the same floor and just down the hall from the cabin her young daughter was sleeping in. They also alleged that she consented to sexual contact with two of them and then happily laid on the floor of the cabin naked while the door was open, again on the same floor that her young daughter was staying on. Of course, Mark had no way of knowing either that when those eight men made their initial statements to the head of security on the ship, they were panicking. We'll never really know all the reasons why, but what we do know from many witness accounts is that they'd been sexually harassing female passengers and offering them drugs from the minute they boarded. It would later be determined that Diane died of a toxic combination of alcohol and gamma hydroxybutyrates also known as Liquid Ecstasy, also known as Fantasy. All of this sounds so out of character to those who knew Diane best, it begged the question, when did Diane take the Liquid Fantasy? And did she know she was taking it? Unfortunately, those aren't the only horrible, bizarre details Mark read in that brief of evidence. Depending on how you look at it, you may not even think that's the worst of it. For me, it's the testimony from the other witnesses, the other passengers who happened to be staying in rooms nearby or to walk past that open door on their way to breakfast. Reading what those people saw and heard happen to Diane Brimble is heartbreaking. Reading how some of the eight men spoke about it later in the day, how they spoke about Diane, is truly sickening. We've posted the full coroner's report, on our Facebook and Patreon pages, and on our website.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.
2: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I
4: remember being completely shocked when I was reading about what happened to Diane, so I can't imagine what it would have been like for you. And I think it was the denigration of her that was really heartbreaking.
3: Yeah, I think it, it was. You know, again, the hardest thing was also after reading the brief of her evidence, I then had to let her children know what I believe may have happened as a result of reading it. So I had to try to give them an interpretation and prepare them for what could or could not have come out as a result of us heading to a coronial inquest. And I couldn't stop the coronial inquest at this stage. Um, so, you know, that was quite... That was very difficult um, trying to word it and you know, not knowing whether or not you know, what these, these men had or hadn't done and knowing that you know, if it goes to the inquest, it's all going to get exposed.
0: You'd already read the brief of evidence, which is, must have been harrowing, I can't imagine. Did you seek any counselling or anything like that for yourself? How did you cope with that information?
3: I, I suppose I think I processed it with, with David, who was Diane's partner. Sharing it with him, explaining it to my wife, was the only way. I think what you what has to really be put into perspective that that nobody had offered anybody anything in relation to this case at all. There'd been no offer of counselling, no offer of legal support, no offer of anything at all. We were just completely cut adrift. It was ours and ours to deal with, and we had nothing. We had no money. No assistance at all to be able to finalise it. And I can remember at the time I was getting very frustrated so I contacted Deborah Fleming from the ABC and she's the producer for Australian Story. She had agreed that we would start to put a show together um, on what the family had gone through up until that day and this was all prior to the inquest. I can remember the first day of the inquest when I had finally got there and Jackie Milledge um, asked the question as to whether or not I had allowed, uh, whether or not the ABC had indeed been producing a story and was about to release a story in relation to this matter. And the, the, the producer said yes, because they were in the room. And she berated me then for doing something that could well have jeopardised the entire coronial inquest by allowing the media to look at the brief and, you know, to have divulged information. So she shut the coronial inquest down right there and then and asked for counsel to go and look at the tapes of interview that had already been uh, taken by the ABC that they were going to use to produce the show. Uh, And I I held firm with her to turn around saying that I had done nothing and uh, would not have done anything ever to have jeopardized the the correct procedure could happen in the coronial inquest. It was found a couple of days later after they uh, reviewed them all that that was indeed the case.
0: When you then were in the inquest situation, which again was completely foreign to you, there were also photographs, a memory stick from a camera owned by one of the eight men was handed in as lost property on the p ship and then was stolen by an employee who turned it over to police. The Somebody had attempted to wipe photographs from the memory stick, but police were able to retrieve those photos. There were 150 deleted photos and they were were entered as evidence. Some of the photos allegedly showed Diane dying on the cabin floor and very explicit and in fact, you know, could never be reported. So you had to see those?
3: No. You no, didn't see them? No, I was able to. I knew of their existence um, and I knew by description that um, what they contained and, and I saw no value um, or benefit in being able to see them at all uh, all, I, all I did was I took the line of ensuring that I protected the chain of custody in relation to those photographs so that they never saw the light of day in the media and even to the point of um, having them removed from uh, legal counsel so that they could not link them to the media so
0: I'm glad about that. I assumed that you would have to see them as um, in your situation there as questioning people in the inquest. Tell us about that experience.
3: I I did a little bit of research prior to going down, you know, because I I had to really understand what, what the laws of a coroner were and, you know, what powers did a coroner have and what were they seeking to do. Yeah, And... On the first day, I was berated because of what I'd done with the media, so I was a little bit wounded at first, but I went back and started to find and understand the process of question and answer and evidence in the coronial inquest, and was able to then firsthand be able to either question or start to ask questions in relation to Diane's death and the, the most significant one that came about was the purser that was on duty at the time when they found out that she was dead in the cabin and they removed her body. The purser of the ship was asked by the persons of interest at the time to go back in the cabin to see whether to to retrieve some of their items and they subsequently did and we now know that what they actually did was went in there and removed the evidence that would have most definitely have found that an, an individual or individuals were guilty of Manslaughter or worse. So the, the crime scene had been contaminated, but ironically, Diane's sister and her daughter were not allowed back in their cabins at all and were confined to a sterile cabin that, um, and had to stay there for two days until they got back to port. And I, you know, I just found that absolutely disgraceful.
0: What was their excuse for that situation?
3: Well, I don't know. I, I, they never offered I, yeah.
0: one as part of the inquest?
3: No, I asked the questions of the purser as to whether or not you know these people had offered him money to be able to get back into the cabin, or whether or not you know there was they were bullying him to be able to get back into the cabin. You know, he he just turned around and said, "I just made a mistake. I just wasn't thinking." He offered no reason. So you know, right there and then, within the inquest, you know, that was in the first week or so, it was that came out, and then then we started to uncover all sorts of things. You know, that Diane had credit in her account that was still on the ship, the cruise company had done nothing at all to try to refund that back to the family. And remember, we're talking two and a half, three years later now.
0: After the break, Mark tells us some frightening things he's learned about the cruise industry in general. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Mark Brimble tells us how his wife coped with his decades long commitment to his ex-wife. But first... Did Mark have to interrogate the eight men named as persons of interest in Diane Brimble's death during the inquest?
3: No, by, by the time that we got to these characters that came along, I found a barrister um, that, that, that was willing to assist us in some way. So I, I was there when the men... Came to give evidence and I was able to ensure that the questions that I wanted to ask were asked but you could tell by those that came through that there'd been a lot of preparedness in relation to what they would or would not say what they would not would not do so we knew as a result of The police had tapped their phones and there'd been some type of attempt to try to find out what it is that they were talking to themselves about at the time, so... I, I really knew that they were really coming into a prepared situation and they knew what they were and were not going to say.
0: It's really hard to think of a more sickening display, a more sickening group of men than these eight people, Dragan Lozic, Mark Wilhelm, Peter mm. Pantic, Leo Silvestri, Luigi Vitali, Matthew Slade, Ryan Kutchell and Charlie Camboris. And it's mm. also really hard to believe that such a group of knuckleheads could find a way to get out of this, frankly?
3: Yeah, I always took the view that, that I didn't think all of them were guilty of, of, of something. You know, I, I'm pretty sure there were some innocent ones in amongst it that got caught. But no doubt there were some things and, and, and certain things that went on that night. There was certainly the handling of drugs and the provision of drugs two people that night. So I don't look at them as a group. Mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, there were probably some of them within that group that were certainly more implicated than the others. But, you know, some of them were more willing to assist than others the police had to go down two or three times to try to interview them down in South Australia to try to get information out of them. And, you know, the police were turning around and telling us that they weren't being as cooperative as they perhaps could have been. So it was uh, very frustrating with them. And, you know, when the, the coronial inquest got to the point that it started to dig up some of the past or behaviors of those individuals you know you certainly would have wished that she probably would have met a group of a different eight men than the ones that she did
4: yeah their behavior on the cruise ship that had been reported is certainly everything that i find would put you off wanting to go on a cruise but i think it's the just in the callousness of their behavior
3: yeah, I think it was. It, it was probably the dialect that they were choosing to use with, with with each other about how they were talking about her. And, you know, I think they were just putting her down in relation to, you know, who she was and that they wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with her and all of that. That was not done very well, certainly not.
0: No. Eventually, in 2010, on the 30th of November, State Coroner Jacqueline Milledge handed down her findings and she ruled that, Diane had been unknowingly drugged for the sexual gratification of mm. others.
3: Yeah, that's that's not exactly the, the chain of events because what did happen was that Jackie Millage at one point in the coronal inquest ruled, a, I believe it's a section 19, and that is that she believed that there was sufficient evidence now for the matter to be handed to the DPP for them to look for charges to be laid against Willem and um, I think it was the, the other guy, Sylvester, and, and one other, Cuchel. Yeah. What in effect that did was stop the coronial inquest and. Jackie Milledge had not provided any recommendations at that time. All she she had done was uh, issued the Section 19 and handed it to the DPP. Now, it took another 12 months for the DPP to read the file before the DPP did anything in relation to prosecuting and charging the three individuals. So that was another 12 months that we had to wait until... It then proceeded to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court was there to see whether or not Mark Willem was uh, was guilty as charged of manslaughter, and that the other two parties had provided evidence to support what had happened, and therefore were uh, were not charged. I think, as we know, when we look back in history, the outcome of those charges and the Supreme Court that it was a hung jury. So the jury couldn't come to a unanimous decision in relation to the to what did take place on that night because you know lack of evidence and really I think it was the way in which the DPP had presented the evidence to the jury. Afterwards, I asked the DPP, "Well, now that you've got a hung jury, what are you going to do?" And they turned around and said that they would most definitely go back for a retrial. And uh, you know, I've never lost a retrial before, and I you know will have no problems being able to get them again. But only six months later did I get a phone call from the DPP where they were turning around and telling me that they were going to not go for a retrial. You know, they'd they'd capitulated. And that they were going to turn around and say that the family had agreed that these were the circumstances of the night and they were willing to accept them. And I turned around and said, well, no, their family's not in a position that they're willing to accept these terms. This is what happened on the night. And the DPP forced our hand as family, turning around and saying that that's what we're going to table to the judge. And um, subsequently, that's what they did. And the judge ruled that a Section 10 be charged for possession to Mark Willem. And there was a statement that he made that Willem was either morally or technically guilty but it wasn't as a result of anything that they had done so manslaughter as a charge would never stand up now it it comes back to my point in relation to what Jackie Millage did is that once that had taken place I had to go back to the coroner and ask the coroner to reopen the inquest and this was because I wanted Jackie Millage to have the the ability to be able to put on public record her recommendations. And she had a list of recommendations that she found should be enacted as a result of the information that had come to hand to her from the inquest. So she finally handed down her recommendations. The end upshot of it was that I was advised by the Attorney General, which was um, George Brandon, who was the Attorney General at the time, that there was nothing that the, the federal government could do, that none of the recommendations could be implemented, and the federal government is happy with the current status quo. So after all of what we went through, and after all the recommendations that we've sought and found and were able to get, the federal government to this day has done nothing. Absolutely nothing. And since then, lives have been lost. You know, people have been sexually assaulted and, you know, and I can remember during the coronial inquest when P&O came out with a statement that they wouldn't ever go into a position where they would provide drinks packages to people on board cruise ships because of what it could do. But go and have a look at what P&O are doing today. They are selling drinks packages. They are applying people full of alcohol. You know, the responsible service of alcohol is meant to be enacted on these ships, but it's laugh. it's a joke because who is on the ship to ensure that they are indeed doing what they say they're doing. You know, you've got floating towns going out there with 5,000 people. You've got a captain and you've got officers and you've got security, but you've got no police force. You've got nobody on state government, no federal government, no, no person looking to, to ensure that the company is doing what it says it's meant to be doing. They just do what they want.
4: And sometimes, Mark, you don't even know if the people who are working on board have any convictions. I know that you've done a lot of work with international cruise victims. The website has many, many stories of families who've experienced tragedies on cruise ships.
3: I came across international cruise victims that just started at the time that the inquest was on with a chap named Ken Carver. And what Ken had done was, because of the the reach of the internet, was starting to reach out to find other people that had been involved in incidents on board cruise ships. And Ken lost his daughter, who got, went on a cruise ship in America, and she just never came back. And he's never been able to find out the circumstances surrounding what happened to her, where her body went, etc. He's been campaigning through international cruise victims to get the US government to bring in bills and regulations that were going to improve the safety standards on cruise ships. He and I then spoke and I said to him, you know, I should start up an arm of that here in Australia so that, you know, Australia and Asia. I've got a least somewhere in which they can go to, to allow people to contact us and ask us questions as to where should they go, what should they do, who should they contact, etc. And you know, I, I, thankfully, I've been helpful to numerous people over the years in quite dreadful circumstances that they found themselves in.
4: I mean, some of the stories, people literally disappear. They do. There's sexual assaults. There's unexplained deaths. I just can't get over that. I was just reading a story about a couple who, they were on a cruise of a lifetime and they just went missing. And their family's Mm. got no idea where they are.
3: No, no. It was was a chap in uh, the US whose parents, you know, probably were in their 70s, went on a cruise ship um, as part of their retirement, never came back. Just never found, never found their bodies. Never, never knew exactly what was going on. And you never know. he, he never knew. He lives to this day, not knowing what happened to his parents.
4: Do you think markets explain to people enough when you go on a cruise, if something happens to me and I'm on a cruise in the middle of the ocean, who's responsible?
3: It's interesting you ask that because under the recommendations that were made by the Federal Inquiry, it was agreed that one of the recommendations was that the advocacy group being international cruise victims, together with the cruise industry, should get together and produce a document or a handout that's provided to every passenger that gets on board a cruise ship explaining to them their rights and the position that it puts them in as a result of going out on a cruise ship. I thought that was a good idea. But has anybody done anything? No. Has the federal government done anything to to make sure that that takes place? No. People kind of look at me in amazement when I turn around and say, when you get on a cruise ship in Sydney Harbour or Brisbane River, you are stepping onto another country. Mm. Now, that country has got an agreement to comply to the laws in relation to the state in which the port is. But they start to wane after 20 kilometres while you're out to sea and at 200 kilometres out to sea, you are now in international waters and the law that shall apply on that ship is the, the country to which it is registered. Now, that could be Malta, it could be the Bahamas, it could be Ibiza. You just wouldn't know. And this is where it all starts to become too difficult for any government to ever do anything about changing it because it's the laws of the sea. Uh, As you're sailing on international waters, you know, it is uh, that's the law that shall abide and You've only got to watch Matt Damon on the movie The Martian when he goes up and they're standing around saying that he's on Mars and he's turning around and saying that he can claim what it is that is there as being his because he's in international airspace. It's like international waters. The same law still applies. Passengers should be told this or explained it in simple terms as to what rights they're giving up.
4: And it's very touching that you've just campaigned in Diane's name and just tried to make things better for other people. And I think that says a lot about you and and the relationship you and Diane had.
3: Mm, Yeah, I, I also think it speaks volumes to my wife now in that it took for her to allow me to do what I did to protect the integrity of my first wife, even though I was married again for the second time. But it really flowed through the the fact that it was my son's mother that was being denigrated. So I had to protect them by protecting her. And my wife had to be prepared to support me doing what it is that I had to do to do that. And then I think it took another leap during that period because it then became the Awful treatment of females by males in certain circumstances. So it became larger than I had ever thought it would be uh, in the way in which it was, you know, protecting the integrity of women, but you know, boiling down to in protecting the, the the dignity of the, the mother to my two first two children.
0: Coroner Jackie Millage handed down the findings of the inquest on the 30th of November, 2010. She ruled that Diane Brimble had been unknowingly drugged for the sexual gratification of others. She said there was evidence to suggest the drug had been supplied to Wilhelm by Silvestri. She criticised Wilhelm for failing to tell medical staff that Brimble had consumed a drug, denying her the best possible chance of survival. She also said New South Wales Police withheld material from the inquest resulting in an impasse that was crippling to the inquest. In September of 2008, the New South Wales DPP announced that Wilhelm, Silvestri and Coochul would face charges over the circumstances of Diane Brimble's death. Wilhelm was charged with manslaughter and supplying a prohibited drug. Silvestri and Coochul would be charged with perverting the course of justice or alternatively the lesser charge of hindering the investigation. In October 2009, a Supreme Court trial of Wilhelm ended with the jury unable to reach a verdict. In 2010, as his second trial began, Mark Wilhelm pleaded guilty to manslaughter, saying that he had caused Diane Brimble to take the drug. However, Justice Roderick Howey refused to accept the plea, saying I cannot allow him to plead guilty to a matter he did not commit, and he did not commit this. Justice Howey went on to say the majority of the public believed Wilhelm should be held responsible for Brimble's death, but their view had been coloured by prejudice and hysteria. He said the coronial inquest had been unfortunate because it allowed a lot of irrelevant material to be exposed to the media. Mr Wilhelm had no basis to believe that he was in any way putting Miss Brimble's life at risk, said Justice Howey. She was an adult who, on the evidence voluntarily took the drug knowing what it was. Wilhelm subsequently pleaded guilty to the far lesser charge of supplying a prohibited drug. The judge then recorded a no conviction and applied no penalty. At sentencing he commented it's a significant punishment he has already suffered. I am entitled to take into account not only the years of public humiliation of the offender but also the consequences of that on him and his mental health. In October 2010, with the inquest, the trials and tribulations of Diane Brimble's death behind them, Dragon Lozic, Charlie Camboris, Luigi Vitali, and Peter Pantic met at the House of Chow restaurant in downtown Adelaide for an 11 course Chinese banquet over four hours. According to the Adelaide advertiser, which had a photographer on hand, during one cigarette break under the House of Chow's leafy veranda, Lozic grabbed Vitali in a playful headlock, while Camboris looked on, laughing at their friendly game. They were clearly in an upbeat mood, says the paper, laughing loudly, embracing and high-fiving each other. Back inside at their tables, they and their other companions laughed and chatted, animated. As they worked their way through dinner, which included Morton Bay Bugs, Fillet Steak, and Barramundi. The get together that Saturday night came eight years to the day since their original nine day cruise on the Pacific sky ended with the cruise ship returning to Sydney. Absent from the dinner were Mark Wilhelm, Matthew Slade, Ryan Kutchel, and Leo Silvestri. All four, the paper is informed, have ceased contact with their former friends. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.